Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Guys, I have a confession, and maybe this is just my mind, but contact tracing sounds dirty. It sounds like what the county has to do when you apply for a marriage license and get tested for syphilis and you're Ew. positive. Ew. I meant dirty the other way. Like you can trace my contacts kind of way? Ew. <laughs> it depends what tone of voice you use. You know, if you say, <laughs> if, 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 if you say, we need some contact tracing over here, it sounds very businesslike. But if you say, dude, we need some contact tracing. You know, then yeah, it's contact tracing. Yeah, you can trace my contacts. Put me in charge. That's literally true of any phrase in the English language ever. I don't know, really. Like, what about like twelve items or fewer? (laughs) You even make that sound sexy, Shane. No point refinancing. Okay, the bottom line is Shane can make anything sound dirty. Talk dirty to us, Shane. <laughs> always, always, baby. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, <laughs> the contact tracing edition. I missed my calling, you guys. I just really... It's your Mae West just, voice. That's what it is. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to do like dirty old movie star voiceovers if this journalism thing doesn't pan out. Either that or maybe 900 calls will come back. Oh, do you remember world. those? Oh, oh yeah. man. Oh, wow. For the youths among us. Is that a contact you're tracing or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> What's in your contacts? Oh, my God. I am here in the remote Bloomingdale studio with my, well, they're not here, but my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Coffin Wittes, and Susan Izzy. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hello. Is this week five? I think it's week five. God. Although we were- 382. <sighs> Although the mayor of D.C. just announced this, I think does apply to all of us. Yeah, uh, that uh, one more month where May 15th, the lockdown has been extended, which I got to say, I was kind of surprised she didn't just go for the whole month. But I'll take May 15th, I guess. Although I had a moment of sublime uh, lockdown bliss the other day. Mm. I was out for my morning walk. Uh, which is really the only time I leave the house. And I mm-hmm. was walking across Nebraska Avenue right near the Department of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. And a very large, this is broad daylight, a very large red fox sauntered across Nebraska Avenue. <laughs> sauntered. With less fear of being hit by a car than, I don't know, like, I have ever seen an animal cross the road with and just looked up at me and, you know, all but said, you know, as you all retreat into your humble abodes and stay there, 
I, Master Renard, am taking over. <laughs> I like that. I like that very much. Um, on the podcast this week, state officials say tracing the contacts of infected coronavirus patients will keep the virus from spreading further. The Trump administration withdraws funding from the World Health Organization, and Russia takes advantage of confused U.S. policy on Libya. So let's start with contact tracing. Um, for those who don't know and just think that contact tracing is a dirty word that I made up, uh, this is the idea that once state governors and local officials make the decision to begin allowing people to return to work or some businesses to open and, and kind of life beginning to slowly get back to normal, that one key way, and this has been really fleshed out in a lot of big sort of policy proposals too that I think the White House is paying attention to, to contain the virus from spreading further and having another big surge of patients is to really ramp up the number of people who get tested when they show symptoms. And then when someone is positive, aggressively figure out who that person has been in contact with, and then try to isolate the sick people while the virus gets out of their system. So contact tracing. This is something that state and local public health officials do routinely, but never really at this scale. And this has opened up all kinds of questions about uh, whether or not technology could be employed to make this easier, uh, whether data and big data could be used for tracking and tracing people, which naturally segues into some big, tough questions about civil liberties and privacy and third-party doctrine and all of the kind of, you know, the meaty stuff that uh, we like to deal with on the podcast. So Susan, give us kind of a basic explanation of what some officials and experts are proposing here, and then kind of where it sort of hits these hot button issues. Yeah, so I think you laid out the basic concept pretty well. And, and I do think it's important to note that this isn't a new concept, what we're talking about. It's used in public health all the time. And um, in keeping with our like dirty minds theme, it's most commonly used for, um, in the context of sexually transmitted diseases, right? So uh, somebody who tests positive for syphilis or HIV or any sort of number of sexually transmitted diseases, they are asked to disclose their sexual partners. And then those people are notified. And that's one important way that those diseases are spread because presumably you're working with a limited number of individuals. Um, so this isn't a new concept, but of course, the issue here is for something like this to be effective against COVID-19, there's a scalability problem. So ordinarily, the way this is done is sort of on a voluntary basis. Interviews are conducted. Individuals who test positive are asked to disclose sort of on their own, um, you know, of their own accord and volition. Um, and, and we're dealing with pretty small population sets. Obviously, in a global pandemic like this, we're dealing with a, a much, much larger group of people. And we aren't just talking about sustained contact like with your family members or people who you would necessarily necessarily know, um, but really anybody you might have been within six feet or maybe 27 feet for as little as five minutes. So this could be somebody who you stood a little bit too close next to in the grocery store line um, would be sort of somebody you would have to disclose your contact with. And there's no way anybody would even know who that person was. And so the uh, sort of natural inclination here and certainly the, the pathway that's been charted by a number of Asian countries. Countries, um, is to rely on technology because, of course, everybody has or most people have um, little tiny tracking devices in their pockets in the form of cell phones. So there's a lot of different ways you could imagine using surveillance technology and cell phones 
in order to enhance these efforts. So one is sort of to use it as real-time location information for all people in the United States at all times. So this would be a data set available to the government beyond the wildest dreams of the most extreme person at NSA, the most extreme person at the FBI, right? This is like crazy bananas that this is even an idea. It's what Susan was proposing until exactly. she left. <laughs> exactly. I said point, currently at NSA, not previously. There's this memo, it's famously known as the Hennessy memo, where she lays this all out and says, just if, we imagine. Could, if we could just get a vibe virus going, people would beg for this. The beautiful world. Um, you know, so, that, the, so that's the most sort of extreme manifestation. I, I don't think that's really on the table. And so um, what we're seeing is sort of private cell phone companies, you know, things like Apple and Verizon and AT&T coming forward to sort of come up with options short of that, in part because if we were actually talking about real-time location information that the government was obtaining, you'd need to get warrants or subpoenas. You'd have sort of a, a million really, really complicated legal questions. You probably couldn't even litigate the answer in time to respond to this particular pandemic. So that leaves sort of the question of less compulsory alternatives. Um, and so one thing that has sort of emerged uh, as being sort of a promising, although um, potentially also problematic, is the idea of using sort of an app-based system. And so basically the way this would work is it would use Bluetooth on phones to communicate with other phones that are near to it for a significant a sufficient period of time. So Shane, if you and I stand next to each other in the grocery store a little too close for a little too long, our Bluetooths on our phones will send one another a message, um, you know, like an encrypted message that, that provides sort of a code. Um, it doesn't provide our location information. It doesn't provide our identifying information. But if I go out and then get uh, test positive for coronavirus, you would get an alert on your phone of, hey, you have this app installed, someone you were in contact with has tested positive and you now need to quarantine yourself. So it's really appealing in theory. Um, it's really, really complicated in practice. So one, in order for this to work, you'd need a ton of people to have it installed on their phones. This isn't something that would work if you had one out of every 100 people or one out of every 20 people. You really would need mass adoption for it to work. Um, and then there are sort of the questions about whether or not it's really possible to avoid inadvertently collecting privacy-sensitive information. This would be something you would have to deploy and develop very quickly. Um, that's where sort of basic security concerns um, tend to be most heightened. Um, and then there's the legislative layer on top of it. And so the, the, the proposals right now, and, and these are more, these aren't um, actual legislative text yet, but more sort of conversations that are ongoing is, uh, one, are these, is this a good idea in the first place? Second, should the government be mandating that people have these kinds of apps? Should they be mandating that the app be available? Uh, should we be incentivizing companies? Should we be reducing legal barriers to sort of sharing information? Um, and basically, how should we be thinking about this sort of as a possibility? And that's just the difficult, really, really difficult questions for immediately addressing the pandemic. Then on top of that, there is this huge, massive question of if we do go down this path, 
what does it mean for privacy and civil liberties? Is the government allowed to use this for other purposes? Right. This really gets into sort of the like the most thorny, difficult post 9-11 privacy and civil liberties questions. But on steroids and amplified, you know, throw every sort of metaphor in there. So it's a it's a really, really difficult question. It has a ton of security implications, a ton of public health implications, and it's a policy decision and a technology decision that needs to be made very, very quickly, which is it makes it hard to do sort of securely and and really, really thoughtfully. So um, I, I think a ton of promise, but also real reason to be pretty, pretty nervous about where this path might take us. Ben, when I think back to to 9-11, which of course I think is where all of our minds go when we think about the last time that we had a very big national debate about these very kinds of issues, one thing that was different about that debate, it seems to me, is that a lot of it happened after the fact, you know, when we found out that uh, the NSA had been picking up uh, phone calls outside the normal process or, you know, some of them preemptively when there were things like proposals to have, you know, people who check electrical meters sort of become like neighborhood watchmen. But but this feels different to me in, in one big way, uh, which is that there are both options for it to be voluntary. And this does kind of feel like something that everybody would be doing collectively together for a threat that we all agree is here. Whereas after 9-11, you know, one of the, the, the big pushbacks on any kind of government encroachment into this sphere of information was you're overreacting to the nature of the threat. So, I mean, do you think that's right? Is there something about the kind of voluntary slash pervasive character of this that just changes the debate and should have us looking at this in a different way than we did after 9-11 when we talked about government using big data. Yeah, I think there are a few factors that mitigate the concerns that uh, Susan rightly points out. So the first is that, assuming it were voluntary, we would all be making the following mental calculation. One, should I collect data about my location and other people's location who have also opted in uh, in order to get a heads up if any of them test positive for the virus and also to give them a heads up if I test positive for the virus. My suspicion is that a lot of people would say yes to that and would opt in to that not as a like as a matter of their own peace of mind, but also as a matter of good citizenship. So one factor is the opt-in. Another factor that I think is critically different from the post-9-11 environment is that, as I understand at least some of these apps, the way they are designed is that the data is stored on the individual phones. And so it's not like there would be a you know, a big government, say, database of all the metadata of all the phone calls, right? You're walking around with a record of all the phones that you have interacted with, and uh, they are walking around with the information that they had contact with you. And that information is potentially available if and when somebody is diagnosed. And so I do think if like done right, the data is sufficiently localized and non-centralized that I do think that mitigates it too. And then further mitigation 
is the fact that presumably this is a temporary measure to deal with a very specific emergency. And at the point at which people no longer feel that it is uh, an emergency that they want to risk privacy concerns in order to help address, they can presumably remove it from their phones. And so I do think the sort of ongoing nature of the consent, the individual benefit that people get, the informed consent, and the localization of the data storage all could operate to mitigate the privacy concerns. That said, I don't disagree with Susan that the privacy concerns are pretty dramatic. I guess I want to push on that question. Like, I certainly understand why there is a suspicion of big government, you know, databases full of individual citizens' metadata. But we already, for public health purposes, let the government keep information about who is diagnosed. And they are already going to be doing contact tracing on, or at least we certainly want them to be able to do contact tracing. So they're already going to be amassing a database of personal relationships because when, you know, if you get diagnosed, Ben, I'm going to then sit down and say, tell me everyone you've seen over the last two weeks. So I'm going to find out who all your friends are, right? In a way, that's more invasive than metadata about who you were standing next to at the grocery store. And so I I guess, you know, I, I'm not suggesting that a Chinese style, you know, massive data surveillance system is fine here, but it does seem to me that there is more room for health authorities to collect and keep this data for a specific period, you know, for a specific purpose with oversight. Why why is that so awful? So to respond to that, I, I think the answer is that because people don't trust that that is actually what will occur. So what we, we, we would be envisioning here is a, is a kind of use limitation that it's really, certainly it, it wouldn't exist at all unless you had government involvement and actual legislation passed. So the most likely way I think that this comes about is, is as Ben mentioned, sort of through individual consent that kind of wipes away the, the legal questions and, and then allows these private companies to share with the government. Now, there wouldn't be the same legal limitations and use limitations saying this can only be used for public health purposes, right? And so there's there's always the fear and the tendency for sort of additional mission creep, essentially, right? Well, you know, we had this information that these people were at the grocery store, you know, there was a mugging or a murder, right? These things happen and, and sort of law enforcement wanting to use more and more. Um, it's really difficult unless we're talking about sort of setting up a comprehensive legislative scheme at the front end, which is really difficult for me to imagine. You know, the other thing to keep in mind is in this age of social distancing, because our interactions and physical movements are limited to what was sort of essential, that actually likely does increase the privacy implications of things like metadata, right? So we're more likely to be attending, you know, a a very limited number of medical appointments, right? Our interactions, you know, with with a very small number of people show sort of an increased amount of intimacy, right? And so I I think it's it's sort of a general sense of of scariness and and ick 
paired with sort of not fully understanding the precise implications and understanding that it's very unlikely we're going to get comprehensive, very, very transparent limitations up front. You know, that said, I, I think I agree with your main point, which is to me, um, it continues to be far scarier to have large private companies use this to alter kind of the terms and services and expectations with their client base uh, in a way that there's going to be little transparency and relatively little control moving forward. You know, the government is scarier because, of course, it has coercive power, but it's also far more reined in, far more transparent and sort of existing controls already exist. And so I, I do think there's a little bit of a risk of leaning too far into the private sector as a matter of instinctual sort of a privacy instinct and also convenience and, and actually ended up ending up creating a, a worse privacy and civil liberties outcome. Yeah, I would much rather have to contain government control of a database than try to contain Facebook's control. You are both unprincipled statists. <laughs> well, you know where they don't have these debates and problems? China. And speaking of China, see what I did there? Yeah, that was it a works. segue, man. That's what we call a brute force segue. <laughs> Excellent. Uh yeah yeah. Uh so the Trump administration has announced that we the US will be withdrawing funding from the World Health Organization. Uh there has been a lot of complaint that the WHO has gone too easy on China. Uh, the Trump administration has complained about lots of things about the World Health Organization. Ben, start us off. Why is President Trump taking this move now and what does he hope to gain? politically from withdrawing this funding from, you know, effectively what is the body that everyone thinks of as kind of the United Nations for global health? Yeah, I think the reason Trump is taking this action now is because his approval ratings are falling and because he is in a genuinely unenviable situation, which is to have a catastrophic world health event that produces its own catastrophic economic event in the half year before he has to face voters. And having grossly mishandled the early stages of it and showing himself to be less than capable of uh, leading the national effort, uh, he's looking for people to blame. And so the people to blame are, at the domestic level, Democrats and governors, and particularly where that Venn diagram overlaps and Democratic governors, particularly if they happen to be female. And at the international level, uh, you want to blame China because, A, uh, China is a horrible authoritarian government that kills a lot of people, and we are primed as Americans, rightly so, to be suspicious of the Chinese Communist Party. Number two, because the president has never shied away from using uh, xenophobia and racism as an organizing tool. And number three, of course, because China has been a genuinely bad actor in this controversy. And so uh, you want to 
talk about China as much as possible. And this dovetails in Trump's case with a longstanding distaste for international and multilateral organizations. And in this case, the international and multilateral organization in question is uh, a bit on the captured side by the Chinese and has in fact played a an unfortunate role among the many good things that it does in in not calling out the Chinese government for its lies about the number of cases and its misinformation and cover up in the early stages of the virus. So, I mean, I think it's why he's doing it now is not subtle. It's a confluence of a lot of factors that all push in the direction of you know, find somebody to blame. It's better if it has something to do with China. And if it happens to be a multilateral international organization, all the better. Yeah, so I think Ben's clearly right. I mean, this is just completely transparent that this is about sort of Trump's next attempt to try and shift the blame to somebody, anyone else. Um, That said, there is sort of a level of additional irony because what Trump is accusing the World Health Organization of doing is, of course, all the things that he himself did, right? So uh, he's the one who believed the Chinese. He is the one who uh, sort of repeated their talking points in the early early days, he's the one who's mismanaged, you know, sort of grotesquely mismanaged the response to this crisis and made it worse and worse. And so um, we've seen this in other contexts, sort of his, um, the projection at play here, but but this is really all about just desperately grasping, trying to find somebody else to blame and, and somebody else for his base to sort of latch on to. Um, you know, that said, this is yet again, one of those kind of punitive policy moves that isn't designed to to achieve any sort of rational policy outcome and is going to end up shooting us in the foot because the World Health Organization plays an important role in preventing the spread of coronavirus all around the world and especially in places in which the United States has a fairly limited presence. And it's not as though there's some other World Health Organization, right? That if you cut the funding to the WHO, like there's some other group that comes in, like this is the only group that has the infrastructure and access and and capacity to do this. And so, you know, again, we're seeing this this sort of fuel Trump's isolationist, close the border, xenophobic impulses. But the actual lesson of the pandemic is that we are a global community and we all rely on one another to be safe and that you can't prevent a pandemic from crossing your borders. And so we really need those places to prevent the spread because it's going to keep us safer here at home. And so, you know, once again, I I think this is this is going to backfire and and sort of cause more harm. And and it's just yet another kind of primal, like howl of rage from Trump of of wanting to punish somebody, but it only makes the situation worse. You know, look, I'm sympathetic to what Susan's saying. And I, I don't fundamentally disagree that this move by the administration is ultimately self defeating in terms of American interests, not only mitigating the pandemic, but also broader interests in our engagement in multilateral institutions. That said, 
There is a real concern here. I don't think it's Trump's concern. I think Trump's motivations are pretty much as Ben and Susan described. But there is a real issue here that gets to the broader weakness of these kinds of multilateral organizations and the way the international system works. And that's what resonates with Trump's supporters, you know, this idea that we're being taken advantage of. And what's going on here, you know, it feels a little bit like blackmail. This organization that that was too nice to the Chinese when they were deliberately manipulating data. And yet we have to keep giving them money because they also help uh, really poor countries and countries without public health infrastructure to manage the epidemic. They provide direct services to these places. And without that, we'll just get hit with COVID again. And so we have to keep giving them money, even though we think they suck. That's the reality that Trump is playing into here. That's why there's support for this move among people in the conservative camp in the United States. But there's a broader dilemma here for an organization like the WHO. If you're a public health organization, a multilateral organization with 194 member states, many of whom have no capacity for tracking an epidemic, and some of whom, like the Chinese, are going to lie about it, the most important thing you need when you see an epidemic coming is you need access to these countries and you need as much information as they can give you. And that means that you are not going to get up on the international stage and yell about the fact that they're lying to you. You're going to be nice to them because you need the access. And I think that 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 was a dilemma that the WHO could not avoid in this situation. And by the way, that's why Trump was being nice to the Chinese at the same time the WHO was, because people were telling him not to shame them about this or they would cooperate less instead of more. And so there is a question on the other side of this pandemic, which is if a multilateral institution with 194 member states is so compromised by that dilemma that it can't do its job effectively, how do you fix that? Or how do you replace it? Susan is right that there is no alternative to the WHO right now. And the 50 million of additional dollars that Congress appropriated for the WHO to help poor countries respond to the pandemic, that's really important money and it needs to get spent. But on the other side of this crisis, how do we build a better WHO? Because we're going to need a better WHO next time. Tammy, your comment that, you know, Trump, not unlike the World Health Organization, was being nice to China for a number of reasons, also being partly because they have pharmaceuticals and supply chains and, you know, and equipment that we need right now uh, that we don't want to, you know, aggravate them. And so it makes me think that pulling money from the World Health Organization is almost kind of a proxy way of like dinging China. Like, you know, I'm not taking on China too aggressively. I'm just, he's just kept rhetorically to bashing on China, but he can go after the World Health Organization. Um, but it's interesting in light of this story that ProPublica broke this afternoon that a State Department memo warns that pulling money from the World Health Organization would actually cede more ground and influence to China and help hobble response efforts. So I mean, it seems like, you know, putting aside for the granting his his distaste for multilateral institutions, if he's what he's really trying to do here is sort of, you know, stick at the China, but not too hard. It seems like he's arguably helping China by pulling away from the WHO. Well, that's clearly the argument that this draft State Department memo was making. Um, and it's interesting 
the memo appears to have come from uh, the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs at the State Department, and it was focusing on the work that the WHO is doing in fragile states and civil war states in Syria and Libya and Yemen and Lebanon. And, you know, basically saying that the WHO is providing test kits, it's providing equipment, it's providing advice to these countries that really don't have the capacity to do this stuff on their own. And the Chinese are out there, you know, giving equipment and offering doctors and stuff too. So if you take the WHO away, you're basically ceding the playing field in these countries to the Chinese. And that may well be true in those specific cases, you know, but it it gets to the fact that multilateral organizations, like I said, are are embedded in global politics. They can't isolate themselves from global politics, but they also are not the only vehicles that countries use for influence in international affairs. Obviously, countries are doing their own stuff too. And by the way, the United States in normal circumstances would be out there in the world giving aid to help poor countries with pandemics, just like the Chinese are. And so, you know, when we think about this broader global competition with China for influence, we have to think about all the different ways that we have influence and making policy on the basis that, well, we don't like the way this organization is operating right now. So we're going to take our marbles and go home you know, yes, it it changes the equation often to our disadvantage, but we could, in principle, compensate for that in other ways if we were thinking about the whole canvas. Yeah, I just want to say there's there's another aspect to the WHO, which, you know, we should not forget. And it has been a complicated actor in this and in some ways a bad actor. But, you know, without the WHO, there would still be smallpox in the world. And without the WHO's ongoing polio eradication efforts, you know, there are parts of the world that polio was still prevalent only relatively recently. And it is almost not entirely eradicated now, but almost eradicated now, largely because of multilateral efforts like the WHO. And, you know, so these are this is a flawed organization. It has a lot of the pathologies that other UN agencies have. It does have a tendency toward capture by authoritarian member states. And yet it is providing an immensely important historical set of ser- services uh, that, you know, without which, you know, infectious disease is a uh, used to be the thing that killed dramatically more people than any everything else put together and you know there is no alternative to international bodies to do that given the fact that national health systems in advanced countries are so much more advanced than their counterparts in other countries and so you know uh, the bluster of the action aside uh, and there is some underlying merit to irritation at WHO in this context. It is an, a crazy thing to want to do. All right. So now for some non-coronavirus coverage. Uh, the New York Times this week has published a really fascinating and deeply reported story about Libya and Russia and the United States and the sort of 
conflict for interest and control of the future of Libya and its value uh, geopolitically. Um, Tammy, the story starts with a phone call that John Bolton, when he was the national security advisor, reportedly had with the Libyan strongman Khalifa Haftar who warned, who wanted, sorry, the United States blessing for a surprise attack to seize the capital of Tripoli ahead of peace negotiations. So tell us what happened next and and why this story is so revealing. Yeah, thanks, Shane. This story is fascinating. And it's also the reporting in here by David Kirkpatrick, I think, helps to illuminate something that a lot of Middle East watchers um, have found mystifying in Trump administration policy over the last couple of years, which is just the incredible confusion of administration policy toward the civil war in Libya and toward the main two warring factions, the internationally recognized government, which the U.S. also recognizes and supports, and on the one hand, and General Hiftar, on the other hand, who's, you know, a former resident of Virginia, a former client of the CIA, who went back to Libya in, I think, 2014, and with backing from a couple of regional patrons in Egypt and the UAE started fighting against this internationally recognized government. And the call between Bolton and Hiftar was kind of a flashpoint in this confused policy where, you know, on the one hand, the U.S. government is sponsoring this peace conference. The U.N. Secretary General is landing in Tripoli to convene these peace talks. We think we might actually be about to begin ending this horrific civil war. And then it appears as though the White House itself has given a blessing to the guy fighting the internationally recognized government to launch a new military assault, which blows up the peace process completely. You know, folks like me who work on these issues have been hearing rumors uh, for months leading up to that call about arguments inside the administration over policy toward Libya. And what's great about this New York Times story is that it puts this policy confusion in the context of broader geopolitics, which involve a regional argument over Islamism and the future of the Arab world, where you have the Emiratis and the Egyptians backing Hiftar because he says he's anti-Islamist and the Turks backing the internationally recognized government because they like more Islamist governments. And then you have Russia. And the New York Times got access to some Russian intelligence reports about General Hiftar in which they don't seem to think that he's going to be successful. They don't actually think that much of him, but they think that backing him is a way to gain influence in Libya. And so they go ahead and do it anyway. Now, why do the Russians care about Libya? This is a place that I think for a lot of Americans, they sort of shrug and they say, why do we care about this country at all? And the reason is that Libya has the ninth largest oil reserves in the world. In fact, they are right behind Russia in their proven oil reserves. This is a country that if it weren't enmeshed in a horrific civil war, would be generating a lot of wealth. 
um, wealth for Libyans, but also wealth for whoever is engaged in helping Libyans exploit that oil and sell it to the world. The Russians have been engaged globally in a campaign to seize market share in global energy markets, to make countries in Europe increasingly dependent on Russian energy supplies. And the stronger their hold is in Libya, the stronger their influence on the global energy market and the stronger their influence on Europe. So this, to me, was a great illustration of just how calculating how far-sighted, how savvy the Russians are about the way they engage in politics in other regions around the world to their own benefit. They were willing to back this guy with weapons, with mercenaries, um, and with political support, not because they like him, not because they think he's even going to succeed, but just because it gives them more chips in the game Whenever peace negotiations finally come about, they will be in a stronger position to win leverage and to make money. And so I really commend this story to everyone. And I also think that, you know, compared to the Russian calculus and the Russian behavior here, we look like blind, bumbling fools. I just don't know how else to say it. It's really dismaying. Yeah, I will just want to footstomp that last point. You know, this is a story fundamentally about opportunity costs. It's a story about what happens when you take your eye off all the balls at the same time, because you're fundamentally about self-aggrandizement. And this is about what the rest of the world is doing while we're dealing with Donald Trump and while Donald Trump is dealing with himself. And, you know, there are a lot of these stories everywhere in the world involving, uh, I mean, this is a particularly well-told example of it, but about the missed opportunities while we've all been staring at our navels. I mean, I think the real significance of this story is we have finally left the national nightmare in which John Bolton is kind of the good guy. And I am so relieved to return to a place where we can talk about how John Bolton sucks, both generally and at his job specifically. And just the, you know, the, the post-impeachment glow between seeing the consequences of Bolton's decision to, spl- to slash pandemic readiness, uh, his decisions here. Yeah, you know, I, I think we are getting a fuller and fuller picture of the real impact of his time at the White House. And I, for one, bet that he really, really wishes that that book had gotten out a little bit earlier and wasn't held up in pre-publication review. And just a reminder, that might have happened had he decided to testify. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that book that is this that my Kindle keeps telling me is being postponed and postponed again. I have a feeling if it comes out in the middle of May, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna be about as you know, watched as some like, you know, reruns of Alice or something. I mean, I, who cares anymore? But it, it's like, you know, to to your point too, Susan. I mean, maybe Dave, you can answer this. Like, what is John Bolton thinking when he has this phone call from this Libyan 
strong man saying, you know, hey, I'm thinking I want to like launch an attack on the Capitol uh, before this peace plan convenes, peace negotiation convenes. And Bolton doesn't say no, according to Kirkpatrick's reporting. Like, what the hell? I mean, to add to that, the craziest thing is the New York Times describes it as not a red light or a green light, but a yellow what is light. That? Yeah, like, what is that? Tammy, is this a thing? <laughs> yeah. Is there a yellow, the yellow light? light? <laughs> there, there is. There is a yellow light. Um, a yellow light is usually like we don't really like that idea, but we're not going to waste our energy trying to stop you. Yeah. Um, but it, it sounds from the article as though he said something much more specific, which was, if you're going to do it, do it quickly, which is, I would say that's not a yellow light. That's basically that's a, green. a green light. <laughs> just not, you know, it's basically like, okay, we know we sponsored this peace process, but we don't care if you blow it up, just do it fast and get it over with, you know, which is just, that is a green light and it's crazy. And what was Bolton thinking? Did he even care? You know, did he understand uh, the Russian role in backing Hiftar? And, you know, there's so much more in this article too. I mean, among other things, we had heard news of the Russians opening a new airbase in Egypt. Egypt, one of America's major regional partners that gets $1.2 billion a year in military aid from the United States. And when that news came out, you know, a lot of us regional specialists were scratching our heads like, why do the Russians want an airbase in Egypt? Why is the United States government not protesting this? You know, is this a big deal in terms of Russian influence in the region? Turns out this airbase was to support Russian operations on behalf of Heftar. So it was part of a bigger game. John Bolton, Mr. Strategy, didn't notice that. I mean, <laughs> so, it, you know, we know the president doesn't read his intel briefings, but was John Bolton really not paying attention to his intel briefings? So it really does make you think that the guy was not, not only was he not a force for good, he wasn't even nearly as good a, a strategist as his enemies think he was. Right. He, I remember him being widely praised as a bureaucratic knife fighter, but, uh, you know, maybe the, the there's no deserved praise as a policy genius here. It certainly doesn't seem like it. I also just have to add one more little tidbit from the story that I found so delicious, which is... Who is it that's behind the Russian backing of Haftar and who's already making money off this civil war? Good old Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, the Wagner Group that had mercenaries in Syria, the Wagner Group that is all over Ukraine. Putin's chef. Bringing I'm back characters from last season. <laughs> right. It's all connected, people. It's all connected. Before he was running a troll farm and making sushi. Now he's got mercenaries in Libya. Wow. All right. Uh, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I will go first with mine, actually. Uh, this is going to be a reading recommendation. Probably a lot of our listeners have heard of this book already, but I am loving it and, and, and recommend it uh, for a particular reason. This is Eric Larson's new book, The Splendid and the Vile, A Saga of Churchill, 
family and defiance during the Blitz. Listeners are probably know Eric Larson's previous work, The Devil in the White City, uh, which is an incredible book about the World's Fair in Chicago, and I think arguably the America's first serial killer. Uh, also in the Garden of Beasts, Dead Wake, which is about the sinking of the Lusitania. And he's just this amazingly you know, fine, fine writer and narrative historian. And this is a kind of a day-by-day account of Churchill and the Churchill family during uh, the the German air raids, uh, uh, the Battle of Britain uh, and the Blitz. Um, and I thought that this was, it's a remarkable book in part because it is so much about the family and actually Churchill's wife is a very prominent character uh, in the narrative, which I love because I really didn't know much about Clementine Churchill. Uh, her husband maybe overshadows her in the histories, but she's as, you know, as in some ways as big of a character as he is in this book. Uh, but it's also just really interesting reading uh, for a time of existential dread, right? There's almost some sort of like sympathy you feel because like, not that I'm comparing what's going on here necessarily to the Blitz in England, but this sort of moment where the entire nation is gripped by this threat and they all have to come together. And the story is really a day by day, not just how Churchill was making decisions on the policy level, but just how he was getting through the day and how his wife and his kids we're doing that too. So um, it's just a, it's just an excellent book. I haven't finished it yet, but highly recommend it uh, to folks uh, now or after the pandemic. Um, Tammy, why don't you go next? Sure. Um, uh, can I say, by the way, how interesting it is that this pandemic and the enforced social distancing is sending everybody to read about the Blitz in London? Um, I find it fascinating, <laughs> but it does seem to be an emerging theme. So my object is also a reading recommendation, briefer than a book, uh, but it's actually Libya related. So one of the victims of COVID-19 in the region is Libya's prime minister from the immediate post-Qaddafi period, Mahmoud Jibril. And my colleague at Brookings and my former boss at the State Department, Ambassador Jeff Feltman, wrote a really fascinating little obituary of Mahmoud Jibril together with Jean Kretz, who was our ambassador in Libya before, during, and after, uh, immediately after the revolution, just before Chris Stevens. And Jeff and Jean write about Jibril and specifically about this guy who was uh, urbane, Western-educated, worked in the Qaddafi regime, but then left it before the revolution and became the man who basically persuaded the U.S., the U.K., the French, the Gulf states to back the uprising against Gaddafi. He was the man who persuaded them that the rebels could pull this off and put together a government that could run the country. And so it's a really interesting portrait of how one individual and that individual's character and self-presentation can actually affect international foreign policy decision-making in a really significant way. And so I, I really want to commend every this this little essay to everyone. It's, it's a couple thousand words, and uh, we'll put the link on the show page. All right, Ben. So my object lesson last week and the week before involved these 3D printed masks that my son was working on. And yesterday he took 
some samples of the masks that he had printed to a local hospital in the D.C. area. And they looked at his masks and said, we want as many of these as you can print as fast as you can print them. Which, given that we have uh, one 3D printer at home and two that he's ordered, is actually a bit of a tall order. So Gabriel put up on GoFundMe a uh, description of the mask 3D printing project that he's been engaged in the last uh, couple of weeks. And overnight, people from around the world have contributed $43,000 to Gabriel's uh, 3D printing mask project, which was, shall we say, quite unexpected. And I'm kind of bowled over by it, how moved people seem to be by this. And so now Gabriel is trying to figure out how to spend what looks like it may be $50,000 when the whole thing is ended in order to produce as many masks as possible. And so, uh, first of all, thank you to everybody who has contributed to this. Uh, And secondly, my object lesson this week is not 3D printed masks, but injection molding masks, because it turns out that maybe the fastest way to produce very large numbers of masks if you're operating in the tens of thousands of dollars rather than in the home tinkering department is a process called injection molding. And so Gabriel is now researching injection molding. And so the injection molded silicon mask is my object lesson. Can I just say, by the way, I love this story for so many reasons, but one of the parts I love it is he just walks into the hospital and says, I've got this. And they say, we'll take it. I mean, that is like the kind of just like ingenuity in the moment. Like that is some Churchillian shit right there. I like that very much. That is, that is exactly what people do. They rally together. That is uh, sweet of you to say, but I think it's also a mark of just how desperate these hospitals are. Okay, there's that. <laughs> that the kid on the street, they'll take his mask. I'm looking and on the right side. How uneven the distribution is. So I think some of the, uh, you know, he will be approaching a lot of the area hospitals, but my impression is that some of them are quite well stocked and some of them are really not. And That's so, right. you know, if you're, thinking about making donations in whatever community you are in, think about not, you know, the hospital that's serving the high end, more wealthy and and upper middle class populations, but think about the hospitals that are serving underserved communities because they are probably getting less in the way of donations. And, you know, I think that's a, that's a part of what's going on here too. Susan. So I have an object. Um, So I am assuming there are many other rational security listeners who are currently homeschooling their lovely and probably very well-behaved children who are enthusiastically soaking up their knowledge. Um, And I've been joking that the only thing I'm really equipped to teach my kindergartner is like FISA. um, And we're just going to start, I don't know, spying on the neighbors, (laughs) taking notes. 
Um, but for those of you who would like a little bit more uh, developed curriculum on tradecraft, um, the Spy Museum is actually doing this really cool online class. Um, it's called Spy School 101, and it's just about sort of the history of espionage and tradecraft, and it's designed for sort of third to sixth graders. Um, so and cool. so it's super cool. It's um, it's free, but you do have to register in advance. And they have um, their next live event is going to be f- this Friday, April 17th at 12 p.m. Um, and you can just go to the spymuseum.org to they have like a bunch of classes um, and we will put the link for this one up to the show page. But any of you who um, have little aspiring spies, whoever is the, the, the most efficient tattletale in your house um, will enjoy this presentation and give you 45 minutes of peace and quiet. Is this like, are they, I mean, they're being taught tradecraft or like history of espionage? <laughs> it says they're going to explore the shadow world of espionage through oh stories, artifacts, and tradecraft. <laughs> how to spy on your parents. Here's how to run a surveillance detection route in the neighborhood. Dead My drop goodness. in your backyard. <laughs> I like this. I like this very much. You know? And that would keep, I'm going to go look at it. That would keep me occupied for 45 minutes. They do uh, have a ton t- of stuff for adults too. Well, I'm, I'm definitely going to check that. I love the spy museum. Uh, and hopefully we've kept all of you occupied for, you know, at least 45 minutes. It's been about that long, but it's time to end the podcast. Rational security is of course a production of lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find uh, instructional videos of Susan uh, showing you how to write with disappearing ink at susanspies.blogspot. I totally yeah. think lawfare needs to produce a video of Susan teaching FISA for four-year-olds. <laughs> I mean, it, it has viral potential. I mean, hey, you've done crazy. It's projects. never too wow. early to start building Absolutely. the national security state. Exactly. 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 You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out. And guys, we really, really appreciate all of your reviews, especially your positive ones. It's great. And it's also great to read them uh, at a time like this when we can't all be together. Our audio engineer this week was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. The show is produced, as always, edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Anthony Fauci and his socially distant version of the Mae West classic, Come Up and See Me Sometime. <laughs> nice. But stay six Very feet away. Good. He's got that voice. <laughs> yeah. It's the, something tells me, like, if you need, like, sexy time reading, maybe skip Anthony Fauci. <laughs> Just, I bet he can play an instrument. He strikes me as a Renaissance man. He probably could. He maybe if he plays piano, he and, and Sophia Yan could do a duet. That would be something we. There's all something in. very attractive about that faint New York accent. Mm, boy, blows me to sleep. Uh, on behalf of my good <laughs> friends Benjamin Wittis, Tamara Kaufman Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Stay safe, everybody. Bye bye. <laughs>